welcome. What a sweet time of worship. We are going to miss that when Kenny and Monica leave, and they're leaving tomorrow, and so uh, we want to be praying for them and their trip and God's blessing on them. And uh, we also want to continue to pray for uh, Dennis Hunt, uh, Truman and Sue's uh, son-in-law. Many of you know that they found out that he had cancer, and uh, he's, he's in Arizona. They got him back to St. Louis. And they're going to begin getting treatment and work on him. And so just uh, continue to pray for him. And and uh, uh, we'll just watch what God's going to do. Because I know God's going to take care of it all. And so we, we serve a great God. So we're in Jeremiah chapter 51 and 52 tonight. If you need a Bible, come up and get it. They're right over here. Um, no. <laughs> We are actually going to finish up, so um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night tonight. Lord, thank you for the sweet time of worship that we've had and for Ken and Monica being here, Lord, and the blessing they are to this fellowship. We do pray for them that you'd give them traveling mercy tomorrow as they head to California for a a conference there and then uh, on home, Lord, to be reunited with their children and their family. Just pray your blessing upon them, their ministry, their family. Uh, Lord, the work that you're doing there in Uganda, just pray your your blessing upon that. There, the Calvary Chapel, Kampala, that, that Lord, we would continue to hear about just revival and, and uh, uh, these kids getting saved and, and discipleship and being sent out. And what a, what a joy that is, Lord. We pray that that work would just continue and it would just grow and blossom, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of what they're doing, Lord, and we praise you for that. And we praise you, Lord, for uh, Dennis Hunt and, and able to get his uh, blood count up back to where it is to get him home to St. Louis and pray, Father, that you continue to give the doctors wisdom in treating him and we do continue to pray for a complete healing, Lord, that you just touch his body and, and heal him. And now, Lord, we ask you to bless our time together as we look at your word uh, Lord, there's a lot we're going to cover tonight. I pray, Father, that we would gain not only information, but some application in our lives that we might serve you better, love you more. Well, Lord, we commit our time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said, we're going to look at the last two chapters of the book of Jeremiah. They're fairly long, and so we're going to be doing a lot of reading. But as we come to the end of the book of Jeremiah we see that God has been using Babylon to bring judgment on his people because his people were following after idols and and, and offering their kids to idols and false gods. Uh, So, you know, they came in, they they judged his people. Now they're back in, in Babylon. And now Babylon, it's their turn to get what's coming to them. You know, one way to look at the Bible is it's to view it as a tale of two cities. Really, the Bible chronicles two kingdoms. You have the kingdom of God and you have the kingdom of Satan. And each kingdom has its capital city. The kingdom of God, you know, uh, you know, was obviously in the Old Testament, God's headquarters on earth was Jerusalem, while Satan also had his headquarters. And that really was in Babel. The founder of Babylon, you can see it in, in uh, Genesis, was a man named Nimrod. He was an expert archer. He taught men how to, how to hunt, how to fend for themselves. He gave them power, uh, encouraged them to rebel against God. In fact, Nimrod led the very first organized revolt against God. The Lord uh, told mankind to scatter and multiply. Instead, uh, under Nimrod's influence, the people of the earth came together at Babel and built, we know, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel served as two 
uh, several purposes. First, it memorialized Nimrod's perceived greatness. So oh, I'm going to build this tower. Second, the tower became an observatory into the heavens. It gave birth to the occult practices of astrology, of discerning the future and, and, and through the stars. And third, the Bible says Nimrod constructed it using bricks for stone and asphalt for mortar, which can be translated as pitch. Same word that's used for the waterproofing material used to cover the Ark of Noah and prepare it for its voyage. So what was Nimrod doing? Well, he was building a waterproof tower in the middle of the arid desert. Why would he do that? Well, he refused to believe the rainbow and the promise of God and what that symbolized, that God would never judge the whole earth with water again. In essence, Nimrod taught the people of earth that God was their enemy and he would protect them from the big, big bad God. That's why God comes along and says, oh, you think so? And he destroyed the tower, confused the languages, forcing the people to scatter and repopulate the earth. Yet Babel remained the seat of Satan, the hub of, of heathenism. For the next 2,000 years, Babylon would remain the, the center and the chief exporter of idolatry and paganism and occult practices. Babylon reached its zenith, its golden age, under the king Nebuchadnezzar. He ruled from 605 to 562 B.C. He made Babylon great. Under Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon dominated the world commercially and militarily. It was Nebuchadnezzar that destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple, deported the Jews to Babylon. Babylon was a very well-fortified city. In fact, it was viewed as impenetrable. Babylon was surrounded by two walls. Get this, the highest was 311 feet. It had 250 watchtowers, some of them soaring 100 feet into the air. This is this huge, massive architecture. The Babylonians' ancient walls were an example of the high-rise architecture, and it was a double wall. So the largest section was like 87 feet thick. I mean, you can put 11 cars lined up widthways on it. And underneath the wall flowed the Euphrates River, supplying the city its water. It was Nebuchadnezzar who built the 700-room palace and the famous Hanging Gardens. The Greek historian Herodotus referred to Babylon's garden as one of the seven wonders of the world. Well, Babylon's demise finally came one night when the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire Belshazzar, decided to throw a party, invited a thousand guests to a drunken orgy. And you can read all about it in Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar's party was in defiance of the Medes and the Persians that were camped outside the city ready to attack. Belshazzar partied in the face of danger to show everyone, you know, his invincibility. Now, during the drink fest, Belshazzar called for the treasures that his grandpa had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, the bowls, the saucers, all that were dedicated to God to use in the temple in Jerusalem. He took the holy, you know, bowls and used them as beer mugs and shot glasses, basically. He's thumbing the nose in God's face, mocking the one true God. That's always a dangerous proposition. Because then suddenly a man's hand appeared, writing on the wall, and I love to read Daniel 5 from the old King James. It says this in Daniel 5, 5 and 6. And the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand, and wrote over against a candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed, and his knees smote one against another." To catch that phrase, the joints of his loins were, were loosed. His problem wasn't that he had too many prunes. God's judgment scared the, the stuffing out of him. Babylon would be judged. You see, at the same time, outside the walls of the city, the Persian general named uh, 
Agbara was sending a third of his troops upstream to divert the flow of the Euphrates River into a catch basin. Now, the Babylonian partied hardy and mocked God. As they were doing that, the water level kept going down and down and down, getting lower and lower. And by, by midnight, the riverbed was dry, which allowed the Persian army to, to march under the walls instead of over those huge walls. And they entered the city. This so surprised the Babylonians that the Persians were able to conquer the city without firing a shot. But here is the thing about Babylon and any nature, uh, nation for that matter. God has pre-appointed every nation for his own special purposes. Paul the Apostle talks about this on his famous sermon uh, on Mars Hill about God and the nations. He says this in Acts 17, 26 and 27. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God has appointed nations, such as our nation. We need to be praying that God's not done with our nation yet. That we as a nation will seek the Lord and find Him and put our hope in Him. Well, in the same way, God had pre-appointed Babylon for His own purposes. Now, obviously, it was wanted to spread the human race around the world through changing their languages there at the tower. And, 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 and number two, God used Babylon to bring judgment on Judah. Well, that was done. That was completed. Now, Babylon itself has not turned to God. They continue in all their idolatries and sorceries and all that stuff and, and rebel against God. And so God says, okay, as a nation, now you're done. Look now, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 51. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will rise, raise up against Babylon, against those who dwell in Lebkamiah, destroying wind. Lebkamiah is a nickname for Babel. Verse 2, And I will send winnowers to Babylon, who shall winnow her and empty her land. From the day of doom they shall be against her all around. Against her let the archer bend his bow and lift himself up against her in his armor. Do not spare her young men. Utterly destroy all her army. Thus the slain shall fall in the land of the Chaldeans and those thrust through in her streets. For Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah, by his God, the Lord of hosts. Though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. I love that. Israel was not forsaken. God is not done with the nation of Israel. But God says here, it's time that judgment come against Babylon for the way they treated Judah. God had raised them up to discipline his people, but now they had grown proud and refused to acknowledge the Lord. So God says, okay, it's time for judgment. Verse 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon. And everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Notice, God is warning those who do business in Babylon to get out of town before judgment comes. That's why it's not really wise to hang out with people who are under God's judgment. It's not really wise to hang out with people from the wrong crowd. You know, that's why, you know, in high school, it wasn't a good idea to hang out with the guys that you knew were going to get you in trouble. I had a couple of buddies like that. You know, I, I remember I just got my license. We were out driving around and we come to this, this intersection and, and the light is turning. It's yellow and it's turning red and they go, go for it. I said, yeah, I'll go for it. And I press it and run it and woo the, the, the officer was sitting right there, right there. I'm thinking, okay, you know, I got my first ticket. You know, I was like, oh man, not wise to hang out with people from the wrong crowd. They're going to, going to bring you down. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. 
So the Lord says to those that are Babylon, the Jews, get out, judgment is coming. Verse 7, Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. See, God is speaking here, Babylon sin as a nation, and that she caused the other nations around her to, to follow her deranged practices of idolatry and paganism and the occult. So God says in verse 8, Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Well for her, take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she's not healed. Forsake her and let us go, everyone, to his own country. For her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. The Lord has revealed our righteousness. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. Make the arrows bright. Gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes. For his plan is against Babylon to destroy it. Because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance of for his temple. And again, that's exactly what happened when Belshazzar brought out the, 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 the golden uh, vessels to mock God and God knew what happened and he says so. And, and so verse 12 we go on, set up a standard on the walls of Babylon. Make the guard strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes. For the Lord has both devised and done what he has spoken against the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come. The measure of your covetousness the Lord of hosts has sworn by himself, Surely I will fill you with men as with locusts, and they shall lift up a shout against you. Uh, locusts, or swarming locusts, is just a, a picture of an invading army. Jeremiah says, Babylon, all are idols, it's all coming to an end, and going to be destroyed. Verse 15, He has made the earth by his power, he has established the world by his wisdom, and stretched out the heaven by his understanding. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. He brings the wind out of his treasuries. We experience quite a bit of that here in Missouri. <laughs> Jeremiah uses poetic language here to say, if a person looks at the earth, he or she will see that creation is speaking to them about the greatness and the glory of God. The witness of creation uh, is everywhere, through creation is everywhere of God. Uh, we're told in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. But even today, you know, the people refuse to acknowledge God in creation. They say, oh, it's Mother Nature. No, it's Father Creator, okay? Here God says now through Jeremiah, in verse 17, everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by the carved image. For his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. I mean, here's the Lord saying, look how foolish it is to make these, these idols, these things, and then call it your God. And now, there, there are idols that are made of stone and metal and wood, but an idol could be anything in our lives. It could be an idea, it could be an ideal, it could be a person, it could be a pursuit. Anything that takes the place of God being first in your life can be an idol. And here the Lord is saying, it's ridiculous. It's just to look at these things that you make with your hands and call it your God. It goes on to verse 19. The portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Don't you love that? Listen, the true God is not like any of them. You know, Jeremiah says to the Babylonians, you have all these idols and all these images that you made of metal and wood that can do nothing for you. But Jacob, God's people, Israel, they have the one true God. He is the maker of everything. The Lord of hosts is his name. 
It goes on in verse 20. You are my battle axe and weapons of war. For with you I will break the nation in pieces. With you I will destroy kingdoms. With you I will break in pieces the horse and its rider. With you I will break in pieces the chariot and its rider. With you I will also break in pieces man and woman. With you I will break in pieces old and young. With you I will break in pieces the young man and the maiden. With you also I will break in pieces the shepherd and his flock. With you I will break in pieces the farmer and his yoke of oxen. And with you I will break in pieces governors and rulers. And I will repay Babylon all the inhabitants of the Chaldea for the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. For years Babylon had been used as a battle axe in God's hand. Now, however, they were dealing the blows that they would receive the blows. She would be broken to pieces. Verse 25, Behold, I'm against you, O destroying mountain who destroys all the earth, says the Lord. And I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. They shall not take from you a stone for a corner, nor a stone for a foundation, but you shall be desolate forever, says the Lord. Common practice in the Middle East is to build cities with stones from the other ruins of other cities. You know, if the city's been ruined over there, they'll take it and they build something over here. Modern Baghdad was built with the borrowed stones from ancient Babylon 50 miles south. The rubble of ancient Babylon was also used in other cities. Yet here Jeremiah speaks of the future fulfillment where the city will be so decimated that there'll be nothing left that you'd want to use in a new construction. He goes on in verse 27. Set up a banner in the land. Blow the trumpet among the nations. Prepare the nations against her. Call the kingdoms together against her. Ararat, Mini, and Ashkenaz. Appoint a general against her. Cause the horses to come up like the bristling locusts. Prepare against her the nations with the kings of the Medes, its governors and all its rulers, and all the land of his dominion. And the land will be will tremble and sorrow, for every purpose of the Lord shall be performed against Babylon to make the land of Babylon a desolation without inhabitant. The mighty men of Babylon have ceased fighting. They remained in their strongholds. Their might has failed. They became like women. They burned her dwelling places. The bars of her gate are broken. <laughs> I think our, our society will have a, a little problem with what the Lord just said. Their might has become like women. You guys be, you turn like, like girls. You know, modern day combat, you know, women are sent to today. But back then, girls were raised to be, women were raised to be, be civil and, and men fought. But today, it, it's, it's not that way. Verse 31, one runner will run to meet another and one messenger to meet another to show the king of Babylon that his city is taken on, taken on all sides. The passages are blocked. The reeds they have burned with fire and the men of war are terrified. For thus is the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor when it is time to thresh her. Yet a little while in the time of her harvest will come. Judgment is coming. Now verse 34, speaking now of the Jews in Zion, we read, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a monster. He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has spit me out. Let the violence done to me and my flesh be upon Babylon. The inhabitant of Zion will say, and my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea. Jerusalem will say, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. The Lord is the one that takes vengeance. Now again, you notice there, it says, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. Remember, that's exactly how the Medes and the Perths came in, how Babylon was conquered. Her springs dried up. What now is the future for Babylon? Look at verse 37. Babylon shall become a heap, a dwelling place for jackals, an astonishment and a hissing without an inhabitant. They shall roar together like lions. They shall growl like lions' whelps. 
In their excitement, I will prepare their feast. I will make them drunk that they may rejoice and sleep a perpetual sleep, but not awake, says the Lord. I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams with male goats. Oh, how Shishak is taken. Shishak is another name for Babylon. Oh, how Shishak is taken. Oh, how the praise of the whole earth is seized. How Babylon has become desolate among the nations. The sea has come up over Babylon. Again, the sea there speaks of a mighty army. She's covered with the multitudes of its waves. Her cities are a desolation, a dry land and a wilderness, a land where no one dwells, through which no son of man passes. I will punish Baal and Babylon, and I will bring out of his mouth what he has swallowed, and the nation shall not stream to him anymore. Yes, the wall of Babylon shall fall. Again, we talked about how big the wall of Babylon was and how great the word. God says, it's all coming down. The Lord says here, and I will bring out of its mouth what he has swallowed. Now, if you read... Uh, Ezra chapter 1, you'll learn that King Cyrus, his first act was to empty the storehouses and restore to the Jews the treasures that Babylon stole from their temple. And so he was able to take this back here. You know, in a sense, Satan has swallowed or stolen treasures from our lives. Maybe talents or enthusiasm or optimism, but, but if we put our trust in Jesus, he can restore them. He can revive them. Verse 45, My people go out of the midst of her and let everyone deliver himself from the fierce anger of the Lord. I like that here God's people are encouraged to leave before judgment comes. And we know, for us, God's going to take us at the rapture, so we don't have to worry about leaving. He's going to take care of it for us. Verse 46, Unless your heart faint, and you fear for the rumor that will be heard in the land, a rumor will come one year, and after that, in another year, rumor will come, and violence in the land, ruler against ruler. Therefore, behold, the days are coming that I will bring judgment on the carved images of Babylon. Her whole land shall be ashamed, and all her slain shall fall in her midst. Then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing joyously over Babylon, for the plunderers shall come to her from the north, says the Lord. Now this is similar to Revelation chapter 19, where heaven sings an hallelujah chorus over the, the, the fact that Babylon has fallen here. Then verse 49, As Babylon has caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon the slain of all the earth shall fall. And then this, that verse really takes another step further in uh, the future fall of the last days of Babylon, again, Revelation 17 through chapter 19 talks about it there. And here God's signal his global judgment when he says, all the earth shall fall. Verse 50. You who have escaped the sword, get away. Do not stand still. Remember the Lord afar off and let Jerusalem come to your mind. We are ashamed because we have heard reproach. Shame has covered our faces for strangers have come into the sanctuaries of the Lord's house. As the, the Jewish exiles, exiles were, were heading back to Jerusalem following the destruction of Babylon, they dreaded what they saw, the destruction of their own temple. And it brought to mind what the, 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 the damage that the Babylonian Empire had done. They could see it with their own eyes and they understand that this is why God is bringing judgment to Babylon. Verse 52. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring judgment on her carved images and throughout all her land that the wounded shall groan. Though Babylon were to mount up to heaven, and though she were to fortify the heights of her strength, yet from me plunderers will come to her, says the Lord. The sound of a cry comes from Babylon, and great destruction from the land of the Chaldeans, because the Lord is plundering Babylon and silencing her loud voice. Though her waves roar like great waters, and the noise of their voice is uttered, because the plunder comes against her, against Babylon, and her mighty men are taken. Every one of their bows is broken, for the Lord is the God of recompense. He will surely repay. That's good to remember. You know, the Lord is the God of recompense. 
He'll, he'll repay. You don't have to, oh, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get even with you. God will take care of it. Here Jeremiah is trumpeting this judgment against Babylon. But the thing of it is, Babylon at this time was very strong. It would be like, like me pronouncing the fall of the United States. Babylon was at its peak. There's no clues of any weakness whatsoever, yet God was planning what was going to happen. His payback. God settles all scores. You know, the Bible teaches that each one of us one day will get what's coming to us. Either the mercies offered to us in Christ, or if we stand on our own, we'll be repaid justice for our sin. And Jeremiah now brings the judgments to a close. Verse 57. And I will make drunker princes and wise men or governors or deputies and or mighty men. And they shall sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus is the Lord of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken, and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The people will labor in vain, and the nations because of the fire, and they shall be weary. The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded, uh, Sarah, the son of Neriah, the son of Mashiach, when he sit, was with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign, and Sarah was the quartermaster. So this prophecy was actually delivered to the Babylonians on an official visit around 594 B.C. That's 54 years before the actual fall of Babylon. Chronologically, these events took place somewhere around chapter 29. See, against Jeremiah's better judgment, King Zedekiah uh, tried to rebel against Babylon. And when the Babylonians got wind of his rebellion, they ordered Zedekiah back to Babylon to declare his allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. He, he took the quartermaster with him, this uh, Sarai, with him. When Jeremiah heard that Sarai mission, he gave the latest edition of the prophecy. He said, here, take this with you. Bring it to Babylon when you go. Look at verse 60. So Jeremiah wrote in the book all the evil that would come upon Babylon, all these words that are written against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sarah, when you arrive in Babylon and see it and read all these words, then you shall say, O Lord, you have spoken against this place to cut it off so that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. See, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was demanding Zedekiah to come and, and, and grovel before him. But the reality, from our perspective as believers, we understand that God was using Zedekiah uh, to, to rebuke him, to let him know that, hey, Babylon's going to fall. So who is this uh, Sarai to rebuke the world's most powerful ruler at the time? Well, he was God's ambassador. Listen, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, we possess great authority. We are backed by our Heavenly Father and His Word, and you don't get a greater authority than that. I think of a great picture of this is, is in the book of Acts when Philip is talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. This man was a, he was a high-ranking official in the government of Ethiopia. Slaves were carrying him back home. He was that important. Yet Philip was the person with real authority to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and bring that man to repentance and to faith. Then as that Ethiopian was baptized, Philip was raptured away to another city. I think that's great. All in the authority of our Heavenly Father. That God gives us authority to go out and, and to preach the gospel. Sarai was ready to read the word of God to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 63, Jeremiah goes on. Now it shall be when you have finished reading this book that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it out into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, Thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I will bring upon her, and they shall be weary. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. 
So did uh, Sarai, did he read all these words to the king Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, did, did he read it publicly? Was he in the street? You know, thus says, you know, the Lord. Was he like a street preacher, you know, with people passing by? I think, however he did it, he had to have been punished afterwards. And, but, but it just therefore tested his boldness in the Lord. Perhaps he read it to the Jews that were taken captive at the time, already there, like Daniel and his three friends. If so, what an encouragement that would have been for them. Man, to hear that, hey, yeah, we're taken captive, but Babylon's going to get what's coming to them. So I think that each one of us, in some small or great measure, are called to be Sarah guy. <laughs> this guy. Or Philip. God dispatches us to, 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 to people in order that we might let them know while they're here on the earth to seek the Lord and to serve the Lord and to serve Him. Okay, chapter 52, last chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Again, remember that the book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order. It's been suggested that Ezra wrote this chapter, this last chapter more, as a footnote to go back and describe the destruction of Jerusalem in order to, to give the Jews the hope of salvation even in times of great desperation. So we go back to the time of Zedekiah, verse 1. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Now that's not the same prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a common name back then. It was Zedekiah's grandpa's name, actually. And so Zedekiah, verse 2, he, he also did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim had done. See, Jehoiakim has set the, the benchmark for wickedness. He was one of Zedekiah's predecessors that tragically, just a tragic, horrible role model. So verse 3, For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, till he finally cast them out of his presence, then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Yeah, the Lord was angry with their sin, and their, their words, they were sacrificing infants to, to Moloch, you know, the and strange and perverted idol worship, God determined that would, it would require them to be taken captive. We, we've gone over this throughout the whole book of, of Jeremiah. But God said to the leaders, just, just surrender and you'll be okay. You'll, you'll be taken captive. You'll be fine. Zedekiah refused to surrender and he tried to escape. We read verse 4. And that came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. So for eighteen months, the city of Jerusalem was under siege. That this created desperate conditions. Siege warfare was common back then, where his armies would surround the city and cut off all supplies from going in, and they they would just play the waiting game. See, a city under siege, it was just a matter of time before conditions became so desperate that the city was, you know, forced to either fight or surrender. And the siege for Jerusalem was especially brutal. I mean, the people resorted to, to, to cannibalism. They didn't, you know, they didn't have to go through that stage if they just would have surrendered and God told them to. But they didn't. In verse 7, Then the city was broken through and all the men of war fled and went out of the city at night by way of the gate between the two walls which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around, and they went by way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him, so they took the king and brought him up 
to the king of Babylon at Riblah, the land of Amath, and he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and he killed all the princes of Judah and Riblah. He also put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon, and put him in prison till the day of his death. Now we looked at this before, but it's worth noting that Zedekiah was, was subjugate to the king of Babylon because he refused to surrender and outwardly rebelled against him. That word uh, subjugate means to, to bring under dominion, to bring under control. It's a very simple illustration, really. If you run from surrendering, surrendering to God, thinking, oh, I'm just going to be free, you end up being brought under the dominion of other forces. Now hold that thought for a moment because we need to read a, a large chunk of this chapter to finish up chronicling, chronicling the details of the fall of Jerusalem and then we'll, we'll get back to it. As I read this, you know, from verse 12 all the way down to verse 30, <laughs> Uh, answer this question. Why go through this much detail to record all of this? Starting in verse 12. Now in the fifth month and the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem all around. The Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poor people, the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the craftsmen. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers, the bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord, and the carts in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the bowls, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered. The basins, the firepans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the spoons, and the cups, whatever was solid gold and whatever was solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, the twelve bronze bulls which were under it, and the carts which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. Now concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was eighteen cubits. A measuring line of 12 cubits could measure its circumference and its thickness was four fingers. It was hollow. A capital of bronze was on it and the height of one capital was five cubits with a network and pomegranates all around the capital of all of bronze. The second pillar with pomegranates was the same. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. All the pomegranates all around on the network were 100. The captain of the guard took Segai, Sarai, Sarai, Syria. Say, Ray, <laughs> if I can't say it, I might as well make fun of it. The chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who, was charged, who had charge of the men of war, seven men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the principal scribe of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. These are the people who Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,023 Jews. In the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the twenty-third year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar and the captain of the guard carried away captive of the Jews 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. Why so much detail? 
I mean, especially if, if Ezra, as some think, recorded this as a post note. Why so much detail? Well, because God had also promised that he would return his people to their land. That he would reinstitute worship. And so you read, not everyone was killed. In the midst of all the destruction, God saved a remnant who would return and, and the things that they would need when they returned. And this would give them hope. You know, this, the book doesn't have a happy ending, but it does have a hopeful ending. And they all lived hopefully ever after. Verse 31 is our last history lesson now in the book of Jeremiah. We come back to a man named Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Chronologically, Jehoiakim preceded Zedekiah. He was only 18 years old when he became king of Judah. He only reigned for 100 days. He was the last direct heir of King David to sit on the throne, the last true king before the future return of Jesus Christ as king in his second coming. He's also called Jeconiah and Coniah in other passages. Unlike Zedekiah, Jehoiakim heeded God's word and surrendered to Babylon. Now, at first, it doesn't seem to be much difference between the results. He too was imprisoned, like Zedekiah, but his imprisonment and, and subsequent treatment was very different than Zedekiah. Look at verse 31. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, that evil Moradach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Now at this point, Jehoiakim might have said, Thanks a lot, God. I surrendered as you asked, and I just spent 37 years in prison. What good did that do me to surrender to you? What good did it do you? Well, for starters, your kids weren't slaughtered before your eyes like Zedekiah. And secondly, you weren't immediately blinded like, like Zedekiah, and, and it doesn't seem that you were bound all the time. I'm not saying that, you know, the prison was a cakewalk for them, but, but those were the times in which they lived. If your nation had sinned and it was subject to God's discipline. It really was a, a best case scenario for a subdued king. Normally they'd be brutalized and murdered. Let me apply this to our times and our lives as, as we begin to close. If your marriage is less than ideal, it, it's no excuse to flee like Zedekiah. It, it, it's no use to refuse to surrender to God. It's, it's not a reason to run. No, stay and walk with God, surrender to His will and His word, because the alternative is way worse. You say, well, I'm, I'm trapped in this marriage. It feels like I'm in, I'm in prison. Listen, those are God's walls and bars. He wants you to experience His grace right where you're at, no matter what you're going through. What if I'm not happy? So what? <laughs> obey God. I mean, it should give us great joy to obey God. If we don't find joy in, in simply obedience to God, then I suggest that that's the heart of the problem. It's you or it's me. We're the problem. Our walk with God is not our spouses or anyone else's. See, we need to apply the same spiritual mindset to other areas of obedience. Look to Jesus. He surrendered himself completely to the will of the Father by coming as a man, laying aside his prerogatives of deity and offering his life as a sacrifice to mankind. And every descendant from Adam uh, benefit from the work of the accomplished on the cross by Jesus, especially for you and I. Jesus isn't asking us to do anything he hasn't done for us in, in greater measure. And besides, Jehoiakim's incarceration wasn't the whole story of his life. Look now at verse 32 through 34, and we close. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments 
And he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death, all the days of his life. Interesting fact. 1939, an archaeologist archaeologist, named Widener was sifting through rubble at the site of ancient hanging gardens of Babylon. And he found this tablet listing the yearly allotments of oil and grain to the different kings. And one of them listed on this tablet was uh, to Jehoiakim, king of the land of Judah. Just a confirmation of what Jeremiah tells us here. That tablet is today on display at a Berlin museum. And it's another example how, how the archaeologists prove, you know, the, the authenticity of God's word. But as we close here, we see that a change in administration in Babylon brought a sudden and unexpected change to Jehoiakim. Suddenly he was, he was elevated, he was exalted, he was treated like a king again. He enjoyed just a blessed retirement. Now that doesn't mean that everyone who suffers a little will be released from it and just coast through life. Oh, okay, it's going to just be great until we go home. Now, that just doesn't mean everyone who suffers a little will be released from it and just coast through life. But even if suffering is your constant lot in life, one day we're going to go home and we're going to sit with the King of Kings around his banqueting table and we're going to do that for all eternity. See, surrendering is not a defeat. It's our only means for spiritual victory. It's how Jesus conquered sin and death and, and the devil. It's how we are more than conquerors through, through life's ups and downs. See, we only have two paths. We can be like Zedekiah and run, or we can be like Jehoiakim and surrender. Either, either path we take, you're going to spend some time on this earth in less than desirable circumstances. But as Jehoiakim, it won't matter because Jesus will be there with you, sustaining you both through buffetings and blessings until you awaken his likeness and look in his, his full, wonderful face. I can't wait. Let's pray.